Can you hear me? Yes. No? No. Now? Am I good? Okay. Um, yeah, I'm playing hooky. Today's my last day of teaching. I gave him another assignment, told him, see you next semester. Uh, but I really wanted to be here anyway, so it was, it was great. It was great. Um, thank you for the, for the intro, and I like the, that you put the information in at the end. Um, this is my third time, I think, to Vermont. Uh, only two times it's been really cold. Uh, <laughs> the first time I came here, I was at Middlebury, and the, uh, the guy that picked me up, I had a leather coat on, and it was like January. Uh, so I was not properly prepared. And I got out, and I got in the car, and I was like, oh my God, I was like, well, how cold is it today? He was like, oh, they say it's going to shoot up to about negative 10 today. <laughs> I was just like, oh, this is the wrong place for me. Um, but, you know, uh, I actually did have a really good time, and I'm happy to be back here. Um, so I, because I have this up, I'm going to read from Survival Math First, which is a nonfiction book that's coming out in, uh, in March. Um, this is the arc of it, so this is what it looks like. Um, as a cover. Um, so it's a collection of essays. There are 12 essays in it, but there are two other parts, which really, I guess, maybe even excite me as much or more than the essays. Um, one part are centos for the poets. Uh, I made centos of um, historical American documents, so I took like Gettysburg Address, Declaration of Independence, Plessy Ferguson, um, Dred Scott, Star Spangled Banner, and I made poems of them. Um, and those poems introduced the sections of the book. I'm not a poet, but I figured if I could take the lines from somewhere else, then I could, I had a shot at it. Um, and then the other part, uh, which uh, I'll be reading from today, are what, call, what are called survival files. So um, there was, I'll tell you the, the genesis which I, this is different for me because, you know, as a fiction reader, you just say, like, here's the book I'm just going to read from. You know, poets, they get to give you, like, a, a how the, the poem came to be. So this is the nonfiction version of how it came to be. Um, so I was um, in my teens and into my mid-20s, maybe early 20s, I was selling drugs. And uh, one day I... Uh, was coming out of a house really early in the morning, and I saw a guy who I had gone to high school with was also like a kind of nemesis of mine. And uh, like a, a month or so earlier, he had tried to kick in my door with some of his gang member friends. So I, I, uh, I walked out the house, and I see this guy bicycling down the street. This is like July in, in Oregon, so it's, it's warm. It's actually, he has a little, he has a black skull cap on, all black, and he's on a bicycle, but I don't see who it is, and I like looking for my keys. I'm notorious for losing my keys. I hope I don't lose these keys y'all gave me. Um, if I do, I'm sure I have to pay for them. Anyway, uh, so I'm walking out, and uh, I get to my car, and right when I get to my car, he is close enough for me to see who it is. And I'm like, oh, man. So he hops off his bicycle, and he says, are you looking for me? I heard you was looking for me. And I'm like, huh? Like, what do you I'm really trying to buy some time to figure out what I'm going to do next. And he pulls out his pistol, and he points his pistol at me. He says, yo, are you looking for me? Are you looking for me? Because I'm a real killer. And I look down the street, 
no one. It's like five in the morning. I look down the street, there's no one. And I, I start thinking of all these scenarios that could play out in this moment. Like, is this guy going to shoot me? If he shoots me, am I going to live? Um, I have my gun in a car, but I also can't get in it because I don't know where my keys are yet. Can I get to this gun if he gets down the street? Well, what if I shoot him if he gets a little further way down? Um, are there any witnesses? So these are all the things that are going through my head and really what I think is like a, a split second, and I tell him, no, man, I'm not looking for you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. And he stuffed his gun back in his waist, and then he just rides off down the street. Um, so I started to think about that time years later. This is years later. I thought about that time, and that guy ended up killing someone and went to jail and murdered someone else. So I don't. he wasn't lying when he said he was a real killer. And um, I... In re reflecting on that and the decision that I made, um, I came to the conclusion that it was like a kind of math that I was doing, um, judging whether or not his reputation was what they said it was. Was he scared? Was like, what was the likelihood of me getting away? And uh, I came to the conclusion that that is survival math. Uh, and so years later when I was writing this book, um, I started to think about my family members and I, I wondered how many of them had had, not necessarily situations like that, but situations in which they had to make a decision which could turn their life or end their life. Uh, and so I went home one summer and I interviewed 16 men in my family. They're all the men on the cover of this book. It's my grandfather, all my brothers, uncles, nephew. Uh, and I asked them each the same question. What's the toughest thing that you survived? Um, and then uh, in the book, I write their narratives uh, in second person, and I run them with photos, but I never tell you which photo belongs to which person. So uh, I'm going to read to you a few of those files, and I'll show you some of the pictures of them, and then we can chat a little bit if you want about which files belong to which person and why. Um, to start, though, uh, uh, I put up here the definition of survive and I actually wasn't thinking about this when I went into this project, but one of the things um, that since made me think that I picked the right title for this book was this idea, not the idea, the fact that 40% uh, of the Africans that were captured uh, and made the, you know, the sojourn uh, to the coast and then uh, the Middle Passage died, right? So any African-American who is in America is actually the descendant of survivors, like physical survivors, right? So like 40% of them died. So um, I really started thinking about that as like a legacy of strength, right? And that anyone here, like you come out of um, the necessity of survival. Uh, this is one of those photos. So I'm gonna read a few of these.
There we go. All right. Survival file. You're out one night at the weekend hot spot off too many straight shots to count and therefore the kind of faded you swear manifold you're funny when you hear a dude you don't know say blood to cap a sentence. Damn, I didn't know niggas was still gangbanging, you say, and search the nearest faces for mirth. But don't nobody smile nor laugh, and in fact, dude smacks you upside your dome as if your joke was his cue. In an instant, the two of you take to scrapping inside the club, while neighborhood dudes whose account could damage your rep bear witness, and you best him before being wrenched apart and bounced outside. He paces one way, and you pace the other. And in the distance between you lies the tacit truth that the animosity is in no way squashed. The next day, your friend is hosting your brother's moving to New York barbecue fish fry, and you show up hours prior, dump a shoebox carrying your Uzi and 9mm on the living room table and shout to the group of gathered men and God, I heard niggas was looking for me. Well, let them know. I ain't hard to find. Somebody gonna die. In your mid-thirties, you'll bust one shot near, but just near your father, inside your crib, not to kill him, but to discourage him from discouraging you against prosecuting what might be your last ballistic beef. But on this day, you're in your late twenties, which in this case is plenty old enough to die. You stomp out of the house and slam yourself into a car driven by your ride to beyond good sense girlfriend. Your brother calls and cautions you against doing something you regret and furthermore against returning to the barbecue fish fry. Hours after his call, you flout your disinvitation, which is to say you show up and stalk the yard with a waist tucked nine millimeter bulging under your t-shirt and a scowl that ain't got no place near nothing festive. You see a dude who witnessed your scuffle the night before, a dude who's a friend of your new foe, and you flash your nine and threaten him into the basement. You lay your pistol in plain view and see. We can scrap right here, right now, you say. Nah, bro, I don't want no problems, he says, and warns your newest archer's foe heard word of your whereabouts and is on his way to the barbecue fish fry for action. By now, almost everyone wants you to leave, including the father of the friend who's hosting, and it's the father's wish you decide to heed. Oh, the timing. You stomp out of the yard, peer down the street, and in the distance see your new arch foe among a circle of dudes. You pull the pistol from your waist, and men, women, and God's only begotten son be damned. March into the middle of the street. Once you told a grade school teacher of your plan to become a hitman, and though you haven't considered that career choice in ages, today could be the day that delivers you to the threshold of that young hope. Before you shoot yourself into this fate, a girl you don't know from high school darts between you and your foe. She calls your name, please, please don't, please. She announces your fast foe is her brother, appeals once more against gunplay, and you pause, seeing an escape out of what a breath before felt destined. Oh, 
That's your brother, you say, and lower your pistol. The next week, you pull into the parking lot of the grocery store with your daughter in the passenger seat, and out of some place unseen, your foe pulls up beside you. Neither hand touches the wheel, and you bet blood on why they aren't in view and what one holds. Decisions, of which the most fool would be to reach for what's under your seat. Your daughter is a fifth grader, which is to say, in this instance, plenty old enough to die. You curl over her embrace, and when you don't hear a pistol bark, you raise your head, shake it. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Look your faux eye to assassin black eye and mouth. I don't want no problems. It's squashed. It's squashed. He idles for what could be the rest of your and your firstborn's life. Okay. This is another survival file. That's my brother. They used to say we look alike. I don't believe it, though. <laughs> I don't. I'm more handsome than him. I've been telling him this. Yeah. Yeah. I told him. I told him. Um, you wander into your mother's room with a Quran and a cross. Ask her for menstrual blood, and when she refuses, March outside, shit in the Quran, smash the cross inside it, and bury the offering in her backyard. In time, you'll visit your first mental hospital, the period during which your mother visits and mourns your long, thick nails, your wild hair and mustache, the drool spooling from your mouth, the stretch during which a psychiatrist diagnoses you schizoaffective. The first day you throw shit on the wall and try to smother a fellow patient and purr your doctor hum days after as if unaware of what you've done. Ma'am, I've been practicing mental health for 20 years, the doctor says, and I've never seen anything like what your son goes through. Once you try to explain to your mother your episode, I know what happens, you say. Something comes and gets me and it does what it wants with me and it brings me back. Your mom implores you to take your meds and you argue they make you drowsy. She encourages you to ask for a lower dose, but that won't stop the voices, you say. Once you ask her, how you know I'm not normal? What makes something wrong with me and not you? Which one of us has the problem, me or you? Could it be that your illness is an inheritance? Of your 30 paternal siblings, what to make of more than a handful of them suffering serious struggles with mental health? What to make of your young son's attempted suicide? One morning, your mother leaves you in her house to attend a retreat for recovering addicts, and in her, present, in her absence, you throw the dishes into the living room and the bathroom and the backyard and onto the front porch, unscrew the breads and stand the mattress and frames against the walls, Dismantle the bookshelves and nail them to other walls. Snatch the drawers out of every dresser in every room. Collect your mother's clothes and dump them in a bathtub. Board the windows. Remove the light fixtures. Set a pot of coins boiling on the stove. Set a pile of small bills afire in the backyard. Your mom returns and beholds the havoc. 
why, son? Why? She keens 911's the police and snaps cell phone pictures of what you rock. Why are you taking pictures for it, you ask? So you can tell your story? You should videotape it so it can have its own story. Pictures don't tell the right story. There's the time your son's mother leaves you to watch him and his siblings and you visit upon her home like destruction. She returns, eyes the wreckage and wails. But I didn't do it, you say. Say it though all the children contend otherwise. There's the day yet again you mayhem your mother's house and she yet again laments. But I, but how you know I did this, you say. How you know I did it if you didn't see me do it? There's the morning you stroll into your mother's bedroom holding a butcher knife and an orange and ask, do you feel threatened? She sits up. No, son. Actually, I don't, she says. But should I? You suggest she go for a walk, proffer a wrinkled bill on the cost of a motel. There's the time your mother returns from another retreat to find you living in her backyard with who knows what in a shopping cart. The same week you knock on her door and ask for her food to use the bathroom and most of the times refuse to leave until she 911s. Once you find a plastic bat and bash your mother with it until she 911s once more. So many 911s. Calls where she implores the police to come but not to shoot you and they say, Miss, we can't promise you anything. Much often, much less often, you phone them yourself and claim your mother has threatened you. There's the day you chase your mother out of her house when officers arrive and holler, Y'all want me? Okay, I'll come out. That day you plod out with your hands skyward, drop to your knees, and submit to cuffs. One night, your mother summons officers and they arrive six deep, find you sleeping, and against her adamant protest, taser you many times over. Another time, you barricade yourself in your mother's house, force a standoff, and who knows how long later, pace out of the front door for your mother an officer's gripping a rubber ball in one hand and a revolver in the other. That time, police draw weapons and aim. Put the gun down. Put the gun down, they say, while your mother petitions them not to shoot you. There's the time you disappear for weeks and bop blithe as a newborn on your mother's porch. Where you been, son? I've been looking for you everywhere, she says. For what, you say? I ain't been missing. I've been with me all week. Once cinching a belt around the neck of a nephew, you drift past your mother toward her back door. She hysterics after you and seizes her grandchild. Oh my God, son, what are you doing? She cries before calling who she must. God's truth is tough, near hopeless, to believe that the next thing that happens will be the last thing that happens. But if there's a blessing and all in your illness, it's the prospect that one near tomorrow, you won't remember any of this. Okay, I got one more for you before I switch to fiction. Yeah, here we go, this is it, yeah.
You ask your mom for money for the movies, for a few bucks to hang with your buds, for a check to cover registration of the sports fee or the student ID fee, for cash to purchase the seat package of school pictures, and all year, she snaps, we don't got it. Then one day after school, you bop home and see a notice on your apartment door with a red label. You snatch the notice off the door, read it, and wait hours. Think, why didn't she tell me how bad it was? Think, why didn't she call my dad or grandpa for help? Think, where will we go? Your mom slept in from work and you hand her the notice. Eviction? What? No! She says. She tramps into her bedroom and calls someone, and you can hear her pleading with whomever it is. She stomps out of the room, eyes smudge black, and confirms you'll have to move. You have a few weeks, so each day she doesn't find an apartment is another day for you to anguish over if you'll end up homeless. Close to the deadline, she reports she found a cheaper apartment in a complex across the street from the one you have to leave. She can't afford a moving truck, much less movers, so she and you alone load TVs, tables, couches, shelves, dressers, clothes, the megatons of junk she hoards. In her raggedy Range Rover, John it to the new complex and unload it all. With each trip, you feel your arms and legs losing strength. Begin to feel aches in your back, fire in your palms, breath gusting out of you. But you're determined to finish because you must, because it's your fortune to discover not just the limits of what you can heft, but how much weight you can bear. Okay. Um, so this is the fiction. Um, I will say though, I, uh, I got a review the other week, um, for this and, uh, they called me a novelist and I thought it made me feel strange because I always feel like I'm telling the truth. Um, and I, I guess I'm, maybe I'm just not that creative. Um, but it, yeah, it feels weird. It just feels like I'm making up things when people call me a novelist. So this is fiction. But, you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, there are two narrators in this piece, in this novel. Uh, there's Champ, a uh, 20-something-year-old young man who is trying to hold his family together. He is also selling drugs. There is Grace, who is his mother, 40-something, and struggling with addiction. And uh, they, the chapters uh, vacillate back and forth. But this chapter, uh, or this part of the chapter I'm reading is from, uh, is from Champ. Peoples, peoples, have you been wondering how I got in this shit in earnest? How it starts is this. I'm a freshman in a polytechnic high school and homecoming is coming soon, too soon. Cause mom's been out for days doing no, what I know she does, plus a whole bunch of other shit I don't even want to imagine. With a welfare check, 
It won't be a welfare check when she comes home. How it starts is mom's on a mission, which means the chances of her as promised copying me a homecoming suit, homecoming shirt, homecoming tie, of her having the ends to give me to cop my homecoming date, a pretty young thing it took a whole quarter of school for me to step to, a box of chocolate and a corsage, the chance of her footing one penny of my homecoming expense when she slots in is looking about the same as the odds for us, me, mom, and my bros, making it a year in any one place without a shutoff notice. Lights, phone, heat. So what I do, what I do is approach my friend who's only a year older than me, but already a young star in the curb-serving cosmos. My friend agrees to front me a sack, which ain't a sack, but a few blonde shards wrapped and tied off in plastic. He offers me the dope on consignment and tells me that if I do it right, I'll double up. Both petrified and excited, I carry the dope home, carry the package in my fists, and keep my fists in my pocket the whole way, terrified it might slip through an unbeknown hole or into the abyss or worse, into plain view. That same night, I wait till my bros fall asleep, lock the windows and bolt the doors and strike out wearing a hoodie and jeans with my tiny package held so tight this time it leaves an imprint. That same night, I head out dreaming of easy double up of a sale, a sale, a sale. I dream of returning triumphant to school the next day to pay off my debt and cop another package. Dream of hustling the cash I'll need for fresh new homecoming gear, a flower for my pretty young thing, and enough left over to line my impecunious-ass pockets with loose bills. I trek to a part of Northeast everybody with an active brain cell knows is Crack Central, a mizon seen chock-a-block with aspirants like me, with not-so-young dealers, with dope heads darting in and out of shadows or grumbling up in cars with their windows dropped low. Only, I go out the first night without clue the first of the protocol, not to mention with a heart much too meek for the competition. Serious motherfucking competition. I'm talking a wannabe or in the midst of being D-boy on every corner. I'm talking one-man shows, two-man shows, motherfucking trios, and all accosting without a second spirit seeing each and every would-be buyer. Me out in the thick of it, bones a-rattle, too punkish to open my mouth and after a while cursing myself for being out at all. Me posting on one corner and then the other with hope rocket blasting out my chest towards the stratosphere. Plus, the brand new dread that my mother, the grace, might be wandering this dim universe. So what happens? I don't make a dime the first night. I don't make a nickel nor penny either. Don't make a cent the next night or the one thereafter. It takes about a week of dry runs to realize I ain't built for this business. That if this is how it has to happen, my too soon homecoming will come and go without a working budget. Yeah, I catch a tiny epiphany, but what about what I owe my friend? I'm new in the game, but smart enough to know the rules, the tacit laws on returns and refunds. It takes a week of ducking and dodging my friend, known for his quick temper and quicker fist, 
in the halls before I work up the nerve to approach him in the lunchroom to explain that I tried and tried, but I couldn't get it off to, be, to admit I ain't cut for the game, to say, sorry, sorry, but could he please take it back and squash my tab? My luck, sometimes it's luck, and lucky for me, he does. So I quit. That's it. Quit. And I don't see another one of those plaque colored pills in person till right after high school. But the week after graduation with my corner shortcomings worn down just enough, I buy a sack with part of the scholarship I won. Buy the sack dead set on being discouraged. Buy with the intent of softening the fact my D1 hoop dreams are all but deceased. That for the next two years of life, it's community college and a twin bed at my mama's house. But of course, I take the scholarship loot and cop a big double up sack from my quick fisted high school homie and trek one night to a brand new crucible. But this time, I make a sale. This time, I make a second sale. Translation, this time, it's on. I go from double up to a quarter ounce, from a quarter to a half, from the half to the full OZ. I go from one OZ to two OZs, two OZ to three OZs, three to four and a half OZs, and some nights I feel as if I can't be stopped. In a half year, it's as if by stroke of the blackest magic, I'm buying quarter kilos from a dude with a mint condition, old school bins, and a bevy of gold chains. You wanna know how this starts in earnest? Are you listening? It gets better or bigger, I should say. A year or so later, it's drought status, and my gold flossing connect has been out of pocket for so long, I'm thinking he may never be in pocket again. So I make a few calls to see if I can get a pack to last me until the golden connect re-ups. This friend of a friend gives me the number to Mr., who I hit up and ask to speak about business. Mr., his voice hella whisperous over the phone, tells me to swing through. I count the ass in of my re-up funds. Got dough enough for a couple, I mean a couple of OZs, and drive to meet him. It's an early Sunday, so the streets have that empty apocalyptic feel they do before the city stirs. Mr. Store is closed, and I knock an eon before he answers. He locks a behemoth boat behind us and leads me to the back of his store, but instead of discussing what I came for, he goes on about this mentor he had as a boy growing up in South Central. He explains the mentor was a white man from London who ministered to him and his boys on British culture about places like Buckingham Palace and the Houses of Parliament on shit like bespoke tailoring in the King's English. Mr. tells me that years after he started clocking the kind of bread he needed machines to count, he spent a few weeks a year in England every time copying a closet full of Savile Row suits, spread collar shirts, and silk ties fat as a forearm. He gives me the monologue, and only when he's done does he lead me downstairs. He stands at a bistro table stacked with bills and asks what he can do for me. I show him the cast and ask if he can sell me a little something to my connect gets right. Mr. Flashes the kind of teeth Hollywood types pay a grip for and tells me it's too bad about my boy being out of pocket, but that he's a man of abundance. 
He waves off the money I brought and digs into a duffel bag at his feet and takes out a duct tape package the size of a book, the first whole one I've ever seen with my eyes. He quotes me the price, complete with new customer discount, and tells me to bring him what I owe him off the top. He leads me upstairs, unlocks his mini bolted door, pushes it open, says, be safe, hella dispassionate. With the first brick I've ever lay eyes on tucked in my sleeve, a trillion doubts knocking around my hard skull and a ruthless, rapid-ass heart, I totter out into Lamar. How this began in earnest, there it is, people, there it is.